Tonight, if you turn in your Bibles to the third chapter here of the book of Revelation, before we dig into the word tonight, I want to say a couple of things. Number one, we're going to pray here in a moment. It is very likely that the Supreme Court will hand down its decision tomorrow, probably by midday, uh, with regard to the definition of marriage insofar as it is held in this country. That will not change how we as the church defines it should they decide to force gay marriage upon all Americans. But we need to pray for our Supreme Court tonight. So we're going to do that. The second thing, and it is an apology though, you many of you were here last week as we uh, prayed for our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel AME in, in Charleston. One of the things that's a steep learning curve for me is learning the depths of the pain and the hurt that these horrific events that are racially motivated bear on this church as well. And so to that, I want to apologize because we did not pray on Sunday and we are going to pray on Sunday again because I believe, as Pastor Kevin has already said, that the answer to these issues which divide is the love of Christ. And it is the church being what the church is supposed to be, which is to be salt and to be light and to be love in our world. And so as we pray, know this. God answers prayer. And and no matter what happens tomorrow when we make up and wake up and do the things that we'll do tomorrow. God's still on the throne. But we have a responsibility to seek the face of our Savior and to make our request known unto him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond what we can ask or think. Amen? Would you join me in prayer? Father, first tonight as we come and gather together as your church, Lord, we want to bring our brothers and our sisters there in Charleston at Emmanuel AMA Church. Lord, just the loss of their pastor. Again, the loss of innocent lives. Lord, people who were doing nothing more than gathering in a circle to pray and to study your word. Lord, it could have been here. Lord, it could have been us. It could have been me. And Father, we ask that you would heal the divide. We thank you. For Governor Haley, who today ordered the Confederate flag taken down from the courthouse. We thank you for that, God. It should have been done long ago. Lord, we ask that you would work right now to heal those wounds. Lord, we pray that Christians from all walks of life would rally together of all races, of all colors. Lord, of every doctrinal flavor would rally around that church and around that city and your people would stand in unison against the insanity of this barbarism and violence. God, you can heal our land and so we ask you to heal our land. And Lord, we also declare in this place in your house that we stand on your word. And Lord, you have defined what constitutes a marriage. 
you declared it to be between a man and a woman, and that is the definition that we hold. God, not because we hate, but because we love you and we trust you, and your word plainly declares that they are my disciples indeed, who and if they keep my commands. And so, Lord, we believe that it's you that defines what marriage is. And so, God, we ask for our Supreme Court tonight as the justices meet, as there may be in chambers even at this late hour, Lord, as they would rise up tomorrow to render a decision. We pray that, God, you would affect the decision that holds true to your word. And so, God, we pray that prayer just simply believing that you could do that as a miracle because it does appear to be a miracle that's needed. Lord, we also declare our faith and our hope and our trust in you. And as for me and as for my house and as for this, your house, we will serve the Lord. We will trust the Lord. We will follow your word. And so, Lord, make us light, make us love, cause us to stand for the truth, no matter the cost, Lord. May we be like the apostles. Lord, at the threat of our own lives, if necessary, would we stand for Christ in these last days. We love you. We praise you. Anoint now our time. In your word we pray. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen and amen. You know, as the Lord reveals his word to us, and as we study especially this particular book, it becomes very, very clear the hour in which we live and the season in which we exist and where we are on this great timeline of the age of grace. And so as we pick up now in this next church, here in the fifth of the churches, the church at Thyatira, uh, last time, this is now the church here at Sardis this week, these two churches are very similar in some ways. Actually, the last three churches really are similar in some ways. But we find now a very unique situation that existed in a singular church, the church at Sardis. And as we look at this particular church, we find a, a, a something is extremely hard for us to fathom. Because this is a church that's defined by really a singular thing. And that singular thing was... They had a tremendous reputation, but they had absolutely no work of the Spirit. You would have driven by this church and you would have said, that's a right-on church. You would have looked at the building, you would have looked at the stained glass, you would have seen the pews, you would have heard the choir, the worship team, you probably would have even heard the pastor. And then you would have all of a sudden discovered as you studied the word that there was no substance. That there was no attention to the word itself. That the word had been abandoned. That period of time that began, that we know is the Reformation era, began with the work specifically of Martin Luther in 1520. But as that era of time unfolded, we had almost all that we know as Protestant Christendom unfold during that time. You had Martin Luther, 
John Calvin, John Knox, all of these great Protestant reformers that began to do this incredible work of challenging the Catholic Church on that which was clearly false doctrine. And as we've already seen, that church that is typed of the false doctrine, again, not the relationship, and as I will need to speak tonight to some very specific doctrinal issues within what is Reformed doctrine, Reformed theology, and the Reformed church movement that still exists in our world, as I will speak to those things, again, please, first and foremost, understand that within every one of these churches, there are people who love the Lord, They're faithful to the word. They absolutely stand for the truth. And they are along for the ride with the particular doctrine of the denomination and not what the word says. And they are being forced to choose whether to stay in a church that maybe they grew up in. A church that they love. Maybe a church they were married. Maybe a church they were baptized in. They're they're being forced into the position of exactly what every Christian must come to at some point in time in your life, will you hear the word and obey the word, or will you follow the dictates of man? And so during the Reformation period, as it unfolded, the church that existed from 1520 and still exists in our day and time absolutely today, we see this typed. Verse 1 here in Revelation chapter 3, And to the angel of the church at Sardis write these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. For I know your works, that you have a name and that you were alive. And it's an interesting statement there because it's not talking about spiritual life. It's literally talking about, well, you're a church, you exist, you're alive. You have breath of life. Can I say to you that there is a very different matter between those who are simply alive physically and those who are alive spiritually? And so he says, I I know your works, that you have a name and that you are alive, but notice this, you are dead. The first part is speaking of physical life. The second part is speaking of spiritual life. You're actually alive, but you're spiritually dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. You see, within all of these churches, you've rather noticed that there is both good and bad in in all but one of them. There's good in that church, the church at Philadelphia. But in all of these churches, you notice this same pattern. There's something there that originally was very good. There was a reason for that church to exist. There was a place that they held in the kingdom. Be watchful, strengthen the things that remain, that are, notice this, ready to die. The things that remain, that were good, that were of the spirit, that are ready to die. As we look at this particular group, This group of churches that we look at it and we go, how could that possibly have happened? When you look back at the history of our nation, you're going to find that some of the most solid Christians 
during the founding years of our country were Presbyterians, Methodists, Reformers of many different flavors, Congregationalists, Episcopals. A matter of fact, many of those who were the founding fathers were of those denominations and they loved the Lord Jesus and they honored His Word. He says, For I have found not your works to be perfect before God. When Scripture says that one day we'll all give an account for the things done in this body, it means what it says. The Lord's actually examining every church, this church included, me included, every pastor, everyone who has the glorious and and wonderful privilege of being a teacher of God's Word. It is a privilege to be able to do this, but it is also a solemn privilege to do this. For you're dealing with the truth of what God has already spoken. In essence, you're speaking forth what the Lord has already said. You don't get to make it up. His truth is His truth. He says, remember therefore how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And notice this. The church then was beginning to wane. The church then was beginning to deny the things of the Lord, the truth of the Lord. And they shall walk with me in white. You notice the picture of the white garment, the same white robe that is offered to every believer. Amen? One day you're going to walk with a white robe because of the blood of Jesus Christ having cleansed you from all unrighteousness. You will be as white as wool. Though your sins, Isaiah said, be as scarlet, you're going to be washed clean because of the blood of the Lamb. Amen? So these people were still walking in that righteousness, but they were getting fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer and further between. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. How are we worthy? We're worthy by the Lamb. Amen? Not because of me, for in me dwells no good thing. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Very clear what Scripture says about all humankind, including all believers. We're still sinners. We're simply sinners saved by the grace of God. Amen? Don't ever forget that. You will not cease being a sinner until you meet your Savior face to face. And then you will be as He is. But until that time, we are sinners saved by grace. Paul makes that so very clear in the book of Romans. For they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. He reiterates the point. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. And again, make sure that you're clear. There are two books of life. One is the book of life and one is the Lamb's book of life. Two separate books, two different reasons for their existence. He says, look. Not going to blot out his name from life. And this is a serious statement. It's a serious indictment. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. For he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Again, notice plural to the churches. All churches, during all times, every church has always had a group within it that is like those in Sardis. Look really good on the outside. 
you would look at them and you go, oh, that's a, that's a nice church. That's a professional church. That's a church that you could be proud of going to because they have the finest sound system. They are the most organized. I mean, have you seen their website? Their bulletin is not in two colors, three colors, five colors. It's in technicolor. And it's on glossy paper. Woo! Now, having grown up in the Baptist church, I actually happen to like stained glass. It is an art form. But I can tell you what, stained glass doesn't make saints. Christ makes saints. I've been in some of the most beautiful cathedrals on the face of the earth when we lived in Europe. Places of worship that when you walk in them, you almost can sense if God were going to dwell someplace, maybe it's here. It looks good. But then again, Jesus said to the Pharisees, it was the same of them on the outside. They were as whitewashed sepulchers. They looked nice. They glistened in the sun. But inside were dead men's bones. And so this group that began at the church at Sardis that carried on, and I believe is most easily exemplified in the life of the Reformers, a man like Martin Luther who took his 95 Thesis nailed it to the church door at the Wittenberg Cathedral, and he said, look, these things that the Catholic Church is doing are clearly against the Word of God. Not against him, against what God's Word plainly taught. And so much so that he came to that condition in his own heart, his own mind, his own walk. He said, the just shall live by faith. And that became the battle cry of that period of time when was founded the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, the Episcopal Church, would spur later on the Methodist Church to the Wesley Brothers, Charles and John. And so these incredible movements of the Lord found their beginning there at the All Saints Church in Wittenberg. As Martin Luther said, enough, you know, you shouldn't have to pay for your sins to be espunged. You should not have to spend your hard-earned money to buy your way out of additional years in purgatory. That can't possibly be of the Lord. That's not found anywhere in Scripture. And so that was the basis for it. He says, look, and finally he would be excommunicated by Pope Leo in 1520. A papal bull was issued against his life, and ultimately he would go into hiding. He would then confess before a a group of of religious court at the Diet of Worms. That's what it was called. Don't blame me. It's an imperial directive council if you want to know what it is. But at that imperial directive council, he says, look, I'm guilty. And he says, here I stand. God help me. I can do nothing else. I can do no other. He said, I'm just standing on the word of God. It's what it says. That was Martin Luther. The man from whom he descended because he was an Augustinian monk was St. Augustine of Hippo who lived his life uh, from 534 to 430. And, and so as Luther gained this understanding of the scriptures through this, this man, Augustine of Hippo, probably the greatest of all the Latin church fathers, as he gained that understanding he gained some very specific thoughts that in fact man's sins were washed away by the blood of the Lamb and not by the church. 
The church has, I have, if you come to me and say, can you pray my sins to be erased? I will look at you and say, well, I'll pray with you so you can have your sins erased. But I can't erase them. I do not have a sin eraser. Doesn't exist. There's not one in my drawer. I can't pull it out. No, that's a, look, it's a Calvary Chapel sin eraser. It says so right here. There is no such thing. It doesn't exist. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? That came from the Reformers. That basic thought was brought forward into our day and time through the Reformed Church. The doctor of the church, as Augustine was known, as he wrote these incredible works, works, confessions and retractions, as he kind of codified some of the things that we as an evangelical Protestant church, the things that we believe to be true from God's word. Of course, would come along a little bit after him and during the time uh, of Martin Luther himself, John Calvin, and again, we have wonderful brothers and sisters on this earth who believe Reformed doctrine. They believe in the five points of Calvinism. I'm not here to debate those points with anyone. I can do so. But my point is this. John Calvin would turn over in his grave if he saw what has happened to the Reformed Church in America. Because it went from a, a legal treatise. He was trained classically in Paris as a lawyer. And he believed that God had given him the ability to kind of codify the things that we understand, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of, of grace, all of these things. He put them on paper and he did so uh, in, a, in a very concise way. But from that place to where we are now, is a very, very, very different place. And in fact, Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox, probably Augustine himself, would go, what's happened to the movement that we founded? Well, it's actually quite simple. Because you can look at it today, you can look at the Presbyterian Church USA, you can look at the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, you can look at the United Methodist Church. You can look at the Episcopalian Church and you can see one central problem with all four of those denominations. That is, they deny the plain teaching of God's Word. And they do it officially in their church government. God's Word hasn't changed. What Martin Luther believed and what John Calvin believed is not what is being taught in those churches today. And it is, in fact, they who in some cases are on the forefront of the gay marriage debate because they are ordaining homosexuals when God's Word clearly says that ought not be so. They are at work in those places where the church should have exactly one understanding of what God's word says. And yes, it is very apparently friendly and very apparently loving to be tolerant of everyone and everything. But that is not what God's word says. God hates sin. And so for us to teach that God is okay with something, that God has clearly said He's not okay with it, 
is to deceive people and to cause them to believe a lie. What the Lord says about that church is you need to be careful because I'm going to come as a thief and I'm going to take your church out. Can I tell you that today Presbyterian Church USA is losing about 5 to 7% of their annual mem- membership annually. Same thing is true in the Lutheran Church today because Bible-believing Christians who honor God's Word, who open up their Bibles and go, but doesn't it say this, are going, I can't stay here because you've taken an unbiblical stand. These are the churches of the Reformation. We must stand for the truth of God's Word. And that's going to make us quite unpopular at times. It's going to make me unpopular at times. But the truth is the truth. And you cannot call yourself a Christian and then define what a Christian means by your own terms. Jesus Christ defined what it means to be a Christian. He gave us his word. His word is true. And so what it says is what we believe. If we're truly his children. And so as you look at these churches, almost a third of the membership of the Episcopal Church has disappeared since 1950. Continues to do the same exact thing. That what used to be a strong force in our world for the cause of Christ is now a cause for social justice, is is now a group of churches that when you really look at what they do, they're primarily a social institution. You can go and you're not likely to be challenged on sin. You're not likely to be encouraged to actually change your behavior. You're going to be told that everything is okay as long as you believe it strongly enough. All people believe in their sin strongly. That's why they do it. Here's the truth of the matter. Sardis is not like Thyatira last week because in Thyatira things were getting better. In Sardis they were getting worse towards the end. Can't imagine what John Wesley might be thinking in heaven right now about what's happened to the beloved work that bears his name, the Wesleyan Methodist Church. I cannot imagine. I know this. Though I don't believe that we can see from heaven down to earth, because it certainly wouldn't be joy if we did. I think he would be very, very, very upset. Pained would be a good word. So many churches are teaching a prosperity gospel or a psychological gospel or a gospel of tolerance of anything and everything. Not challenging us the way we need to be challenged because we don't need to be told that it's okay to sin. Amen? I think we're all pretty good at that already. I don't need any help in that regard in my life and I'm sure you don't either. What we need is to be pointed towards the full counsel of God's word. And so he begins by saying, be careful, because there is a watchful gaze that is over every church. 
And he alludes to something that you will be hard-pressed to find in these types of churches, and that's the work of the Spirit. A lot of programs, a lot of good things. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things, by the way. There's nothing wrong with feeding the homeless. We should all be doing that. We should be taking care of the needy. Those things are very important. But we do that so that we have opportunity to take care of their soul. We do that as a way to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't preach the gospel, we've left that person still in eternal damnation. What good is it, Jesus said, if a man gains the entire world but loses his soul? You see, Christ is concerned with souls far more than he's concerned with houses and food and all those things. The houses and food are a way to get to the soul, not the other way around. We want to make sure that we have it correct. We want to minister to people's deepest need, and their deepest need is for them to come to faith in Christ. No church can have an effective ministry without the work of the Spirit. No church can. Not this church or any other church. And when it just becomes programmed because headquarters called you up and said, this is what you now believe, and that's why you've seen the Episcopal Church, for instance, completely split, literally divided. Because on one side, look, my Bible doesn't say that. And on the other side, well, headquarters said, this is what we believe. You have the group that says, my Bible said, and you have the group that says, my headquarters said. You have to stand with the group that says, my Bible says. So you're forced to make a choice. The Holy Spirit comes and speaks to that and says, look, look at those seven things that are that sevenfold outflow that I believe this passage is talking about. Notice it says, for the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars are the seven pastors. We know who they are. The leadership, the mouth. God's saying, look, you pastors better speak my word. I feel sorry for pastors who take it upon themselves to conveniently leave passages out that they don't like because there's a bunch of them there's no, there's no shortage of churches you can go to to go have your ears tickled just so you know this is not one of them not one of them and that's not to challenge the authority of our country that's to say I will serve the Lord what he said is good with me I believe it, he said it, that settles it. I love that old bumper sticker. But there in Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says, And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, talking about Jesse's dead stump. (laughs) Who comes out of that but David the king? And who comes out of David's loins but none other than Jesus Christ the Messiah? Out of that branch shall grow his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. Amen? And it goes on to say, Isaiah writing almost 700 years before Jesus was baptized in the river Jordan. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, and of understanding, and counsel, and might, and knowledge, and fear of the Lord. For his delight is in the fear of the Lord. His delight, the delight of the Spirit, is in the fear, the reverence of the Lord. Not in the fear of headquarters. 
the fear of denominational doctrine or alignment, not the fear of what, you know, we might lose our subsidies. The fear of the Lord. Solomon would say it this way. You sang about it. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Amen? If you want to know, wisdom is easiest to understand. It's the ability to use knowledge correctly or rightly. So if you want wisdom, fear the Lord. If you want to know how to take things into your life that you have learned and understand them correctly and then use them, fear the Lord, reverence the Lord. Give the Lord his rightful position. Lord means master, by the way. It means we bow to him. He does not bow to us. God's not going, well, you know, I really blew it on the marriage thing. I just didn't know what I was doing when I made men and women. And I'm actually not trying to, to, to be too frivolous here. I, I'm saying it's that simple in God's mind. He knew what he was doing. In the beginning, he created the male and female. And so this issue that's going to be decided by our court was actually decided by God a long time ago. It's not our job to, to turn it into something else. He is Lord. We bow to him. He calls the shots. That's a work of the Spirit. And the Spirit is speaking. I got a couple of text messages, a few emails late this afternoon, one of them from Washington, D.C. And as I, as I read it, I just my heart crumbled. I was anguished. That somehow incumbent upon our Supreme Court, they feel is, is a necessity to say that they know better than God. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. But evil is a reproach to all people. And as much as there's a lot of voices out there right now saying, well, it's just time. No, it's not time for us to change what God has declared. It'll never be time for us to change what God has declared. Never. And this church feared to take a stand. They were concerned more about the tithe than they were about the Lord to whom the tithe belongs. They were concerned about offending people instead of offending a holy God. And we need to be very concerned about offending a holy God. Jesus actually said it, beware of that which can kill both the body and the spirit. You see, man can only throw us in jail. Man can only penalize us while we're here. After that, glory. Amen? Pretty big difference between those two things. One's temporal, one's eternal. But you see, this church had soiled its garments, many of them. But not all of them. And I would ask a simple question. How many churches in the world today, how many churches here in America have soiled their garments? They've put a stain on the righteous garments of Christ. They said, no, we're not going to believe that anymore. 
you know, if you want to live together before you get married, that's between you and them. Well, actually, my Bible calls that fornication. You know, if you want to socially drink, and you know, so what if you get a little tipsy and you get a little whack, you want to toke up a little bit? I mean, come on, what's up with that? My Bible calls that pharmakia. My Bible calls that drunkenness. So what if you want to tell vile, disgusting jokes and look at filthy things on the Internet? So what if you want to... I mean, it's your private time. My Bible calls that immorality. You see, we don't get to change those things. We can choose whether we do them or not, but we don't get to change them. They are not untrue because we say they are untrue. They're still true. And so God is looking at that going, you better be alert. Strengthen the things that remain, it says in verse 2. Get ready. Because you either do it my way or I'll remove your lampstand. I'll take you out because my name is holy. My God is a jealous God. Your God is a jealous God. He is not willing that we should worship any other place than at his feet. And if you decline so far as to go into spiritual lethargy, which I believe pretty much describes a lot of the church in the world today, doesn't it? You look at the churches around here. You don't have to drive very far, by the way. You, you can find some churches that are no longer about Jesus Christ. They're no longer about the Word of God. They're about lots of other things. And some of those things are good things, if you want to call them good things. But the church is to be about Jesus Christ. That's our mission. We need to stay on mission. Need to not get lost in the in the world of tolerance and and understanding all of these other things that the world wants us to get engaged in. We have missions to be missionaries to take the mission to other people, and the mission is to see men come to faith in Christ, the real Christ. The one who died for our sins. Paul said it this way. What then? Should I go on sinning that grace might abound? He answered his own question and said, certainly not. Heaven forbid. You see, we do, as Peter said, need to be sober and vigilant. Because our adversary, the devil, is seeking as a roaring lion those on this earth. I'm praying for my brother Tony Perkins. He's in the thick of it. Standing. We're going to get to it in the book of Ephesians. Having therefore done all the stand, stand. A lot of the church isn't standing anymore. The church is bowing. And it's not bowing to God. It's bowing to political correctness. It's bowing bowing to unbridled tolerance of every flavor of sin so that people don't leave the church. That is a bad church business model because the one who's the CEO declared what we're supposed to be. Christ-like was what he reminded us of. 
Some in Sardis were losing their spiritual integrity. What a horrible thing when a church loses its spiritual integrity. It's one thing, maybe we don't always have everything. But man, if we're really alert, if we're, we're really uh, watching out for laxity and indifference and all of those kind of things, you see, you can kind of fall into that. Sometimes we end up with very, very large buildings that are actually very empty of the work of the Spirit. And once you lose that vitality, it's dead. Its purpose is over. And I don't know about you, but you know we've had a few cats in our house. And when they die, you don't leave them indoors. You take them out and bury them because they start to stink. And I often wonder if, if the Lord doesn't do the smell test on the church. Because, wow, it's not much life there. Getting a little rancid. I wonder if we hadn't ought to occasionally just check and make sure that we're alive. Pinch ourselves. Say, Lord, help me to repent, to watch, and to walk worthy. Verse 3, it says, Remember, therefore, how you received and you heard. What it, how do you know that you're a Christian? You know by the hearing of the Word of God. Anybody that tells you that they, they know apart from the Word of God is not being accurate. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. That's how we know. God spoke it. He said, look, if you believe on my name, you'll be saved. Unless a man be born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those truths all come from the Bible. They don't come from some dude, some old guy. Well, there was an old guy, and he said it. No, it came from the mind of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gave it to men of old. Those men of old wrote those things down, and they have stood the test of time. The Bible is the most scrutinized book ever in the course of human history. There have been more books written about the Bible than any other book, period. The Bible is still the bestseller of all time, and will continue until the Lord comes. Why? Why? Because it's truth. There aren't a whole lot of books you can go to Barnes and Noble and get that are true. Amen? Watch. Repent. He says, look, if you don't do so, I'll come and I will snatch you off this earth. Why? Have you ever thought why God would say things like this? Because he cares about the people who are following after false doctrine. He knows that people who occupy pulpits who are not teaching the truth can sway people who genuinely are searching for the real Christ. And so he says, look, my message or no message, or I will make it so obvious that you are not of me that when people come there, they will do so of their own peril. And so what do you see? It's almost laughable what happens now in our world. You have churches that... You, you look at the fruit of their ministry and you're going, how can anybody think that that's the real Jesus? We need to be busy about our Father's business. Verse 4 says you have a few names in Sardis. Notice this. We haven't defiled their garments. They're, they're not dirty. They haven't trod through the mud. And I hope that that is us. I pray that is us. I pray that's me. But I haven't drug my Savior's righteousness through the mud. 
Now, I know I'm not perfect. Absolutely know it, believe it. If you come to me and say, Jeff, you know you made a mistake, I'll go, yes, I did. Amen. Hallelujah. I am a complete knucklehead, have no idea why they said it, blame that on me. But I also know this, the righteousness that I possess is not mine, it's his. And I have an obligation to not wear his righteousness through the mud of this world. They are his disciples indeed if, big if, they keep his commands. It doesn't mean you're saved by keeping commands. It means that the sign that you're actually one of his kids is that you care about what he says. And then you do it. So many Christians are wandering around making up their own rules. And because of it, their souls dry up and they take other people with them. I'm stunned sometimes at the number of people who follow after that false doctrine of Balaam that we've already seen. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the Gnostics. We're supposed to be walking around in white garments suited for heaven. That's actually the goal that we have while we're here on earth. While we're preaching the gospel, we're supposed to end up looking like, acting like, talking like, being like as much as we possibly can like Jesus. Not seeing how close we can get to the dirt and the filth of this world. Because the dirt and the filth of this world destroys people's lives. If you don't believe that, you don't have to go very far to figure it out. If you don't believe that that dirt and that filth destroys people's lives, watch the people coming out of the Commerce Casino or the Hustler Casino and they hop in their junk pieces of car and they, they drive off and go back to their hovel that they live in because they have just spent their last bit of money trying to reap a reward that is an ill-gotten gain. Scripture speaks to that issue. Don't, don't pay homage to the God of luck. Prophet Isaiah said that very clearly. Don't do it. It won't work out well for you. And so he says the clothes of the over overcomer are what you should wear. The robes of white, that spiritual fruit. Sometimes I wonder, you know, it's like, Lord, I, I don't even know that I could accept that garment. You're not going to have any choice. He's going to put it on you because of him, not because of you, not because of me, not because of this church, because of him. He wants to clothe you in righteousness. And he will do so freely. When we get to chapter 19, and to her the church was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, white linen, because of the righteous acts of the saints. Notice what it says. We lived out our lives trying to be pleasing to the Lord. And finally, where this all begins to wrap up, he says, look, you guys, those who are clothed in righteousness, I won't blot your name out of the book of life. The term blot out there means literally to wipe out. It's like it was on a dry erase board, pfft, gone. But he's talking about a very specific book. And here in the book of Revelation, you'll see the book of life six times. You're in chapter 3, 13, 17, chapter 20. You're, you're going to see it several times. But there are two books. One is the book of life, which is all lives that have ever been lived. Every last life 
in that book of life. And then there's the Lamb's book of life, those who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved. The ones that Jesus wrote them down in his book, a very specific book. And so what he's saying is, look, you keep playing with these things, and this church, you people, I'm just going to get rid of you. That's not something you want the Lord to say about your church or about you personally. But I can tell you this, I've experienced it in my own life. I've had a couple of men very specifically who are no longer with us, whom kept flirting with sin and flirting with sin and flirting with sin and doing exactly what they were told time and time and time and time and time again not to do. Both of them have exited this planet. I won't debate whether they exited this planet with their last breath and are awaiting final judgment or whether they're with the Lord. I don't know. But I can guarantee you this, they had no assurance when they left this planet of where they were going. And I can tell you this, I believe the Lord took them out. One of them was a pastor who refused to give up his life of sin. And that pastor kept on sinning with impunity. Left his wife, left his children, He was counseled time and time again, do not do this thing. He destroyed two churches, and as he was driving on a road to go meet with the girl with whom he was having that relationship, he was killed deader than a doornail in a head-on traffic accident. Because God, I believe, was not going to let him destroy another family. Make no mistake, God sees everything we do. And he's not beyond taking us out much sooner than you think. When we lose our savor, it's not a good thing to fall into the hands of a jealous God. He doesn't want to do that, but I believe that what Scripture clearly says, because we're saved by grace, because that we're given faith to believe, we're not saved by works, we're not saved because we're sinless. We're saved because Jesus was sinless. But because he puts righteousness in our account that came from Jesus, he takes that righteousness very seriously. When you're a new believer, I, I don't know if there's you know, such a thing as a grace-o-meter, but I think that there is at least something like that. When you're a new believer, it's like, well, you didn't do crack today. That's, that's good. But after you've walked with the Lord for 30 years, it's a little different story. I think the Lord could expect our houses to be a little bit cleaner when we walk with Him for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. He expects us to to live like Him. And so He says to this church, listen up. I want you to have integrity. I want you to walk in my word, walk in my ways. That those that overcome, He confesses us before His Father. But to those who don't, you might want to check and see what day and time it is. Because no one knows when the Son of Man comes, but I know this. Now, because of where we are in the world's stage right now, you might want to have your bags packed. You might want to go take some horseback riding lessons. 
because our king is coming and he's a righteous judge he loves people so much so that he sent Jesus into the world to die for every last person on this earth but he didn't do that flippantly and he didn't do that frivolously he did that in a holy fashion so that we might be called the sons of God amen let's pray Precious Heavenly Father, as we close the service tonight, God, we would ask for all of our brothers and sisters, Lord, in these wayward denominations, Lord, that have fled the pure, simple, and plain teaching of your word. They've abandoned sound doctrine so that they might have approval of men. God, would you never let that be true of this church? ever. Lord, would you keep us walking in your ways? Would you take each of us and impart to us the truth of your word? Lord, would we stand firmly? Would we be rooted and grounded in your word? Would we know your truth? And would that truth continue to just set us free, Lord? God, we ask that you would bind the wounds of those whose hearts are broken, Lord, over what's maybe happened in their church. God, would you find them a place that they can grow and be fed, Lord. We pray that you'd watch over us, Lord. Help us to never stray to the right or to the left. And so, Lord, we just give you our lives. So grateful that you first loved us, Lord. That you first loved us, Lord. That's hard to imagine. But we thank you for it. We bless you. We praise you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.